Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I hate more than anything having to wash my dishes like a bunch, like more than once, like four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten, ten times. times, ten times. These stupid things. You're trying to conserve water. I just want to wash my dishes, and now we might be able to wash our dishes again. It's really a great day for the Donald is going to fix it all. Oh man. Can't wait till we get to that. Stick around for speed, man. You'll, you'll figure out what we're talking that about. One. Ooh, <laughs> that was a good one. Um, I want to something. <clears throat> Sorry, there's. I thought we were having an audio issue. Never mind. Hi guys, it's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from uh, Keene State College. Hi guys. Hey Nick. Hi Nick. Hi Bill. Um, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff, uh, if you guys have questions, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics, beers that we try you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android, just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms, review us, share us, like us through there. Uh, our merch line is on, uh, Teespring, uh, again, not a good direct link uh look for the link on our social channels that i just gave you so kindly um you can get your uh human being and fish coexist t-shirt with the peace sign on it it's really I, nice it's one of my favorites it is uh with many more things to come so definitely check that out um yeah i think that that covers that's everything, good right yeah um yeah last week was iran this week is pretty much iran too uh lots of fun developments mainly in in the direction that I thought it was going to go. So <laughs> you're you're welcome. I was very prescient on that. But, you know, to just kind of play the game, Phil or Phil, Bill, uh, can you give us uh, a breakdown of uh, of what's happened you that bet. made me so right. So it's been over 10 days since the attack on the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, and the story is still dominating the news. We witnessed some dramatic developments this week, including the Iranian government face, facing intense domestic pressure, including calls for the president and the supreme leader to step down following a shooting down of a Ukrainian airliner. They shouldn't have done that, Nick. Uh, the Trump administration I am was shocked, by the way, that <laughs> yes. that was them. Yeah. The Trump administration was also under pressure as it has struggled to justify its claims. Soleimani was planning a number of imminent attacks. On Monday, Trump downplayed the issue of imminence, tweeting, quote, it didn't it doesn't really matter because of his horrible past. The other angle worth discussing is the recent effort by the Trump administration to portray portray Democrats as terrorists because they have criticized the administration on Iran. 
On Monday, Trump retweeted a doctored image of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer wearing traditional Middle Eastern head coverings in front of an Iranian flag. The graphic has the words Democrats 2020 uh, sprawled across the bottom and is accompanied by the caption, quote, the corrupt Dems trying their best to become to the Ayatollah's rescue. Hashtag Nancy Pelosi fake news. That's a good hashtag. It's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Trump was widely condemned for the tweet, yet the White House press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, doubled down in defense of Trump, saying that Trump believes the Dems are, quote, parroting Iranian talking points and almost taking the side of terrorists. Almost. They're not terrorists, Nick. They're almost terrorists. Yeah, so, that's almost worse. Right, Phil, this story has so many fascinating angles. You know, where do you want to start? Um, I, we, I mean, I think we should start with the, 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 the continued fallout, I think. I mean, I, we should come back around to the rhetoric because yeah. it's, it's interesting and troubling. But it's also kind of one more in this long line of, of this path that we've been on for a long time. Um, I, I think it's worth talking a little bit about the response that has happened in Iran to the fact that Iranians shut da- shot down a plane. Um, it was totally avoidable. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they could have, you know, they knew they were launching missiles. They could have, you know, stopped flights. They could have, there's lots of stuff that could have happened to, to prevent this from occurring. Um, but I think it, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the domestic, the, 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 the fact that the Iranian people um, so strongly kind of came out in protest against this. It's just worth, it's a good reminder that Iran is not a monolith, right? Like the, the, the regime as shitty as it is, does not necessarily represent, does not represent the, the bulk of, of the Iranian people. The other part I think is that, that is worth talking about. And then I'll, I'll let you kind of run with which of these you want to go with is that the Trump's talking about how it doesn't matter if the attack was imminent mm-hmm. um, because it, does no, a he's, lot. He's, a, he's a bad guy bad guy <laughs> right right and and this is i mean this is something that you know i am uncomfortable with donald trump getting to make the sort of you know these very quick decisions about i'm going to kill someone just because they're bad but it's not just donald trump right this is the this is an issue that was in place with barack obama with george bush i mean this is the the issue of a president who can make these decisions um and the idea is that th- this is why the president has to go to congress Unless it is an imminent attack. So the president, if there is something that is about to happen, the president can in that moment, you know, use military force against someone. But otherwise, he's supposed to go to Congress. And so in this case, where he didn't go to Congress because there was an imminent attack to come back around to his claim that the imminence doesn't matter, it it does. Right. If we want to keep the separation of powers and checks on presidential power. That's kind of in the weeds, but it's a really important distinction. Um, Maybe that's a boring place to start, but but I, I, I do want to talk about it. Yeah, I, I think imminence or or the domestic public. Where do you, where do you want to begin, Nick? I don't know. You're the boring one. So okay, go ahead. all right, yeah, right. Please. <laughs> let's let's start with imminence because I do think that's even if it's boring, I think it's really important because Trump came out and I'm trying to remember that it was this week or the previous week, and he said it was four embassies that were being targeted. And then after that, you so slowly saw individuals within the administration walking that back. Bill Barr came out and said, well, imminence is a tricky thing. When it really, I mean, it is, but it also isn't. Uh, the the defense secretary es- said, "Yeah, Esper was the yeah." Said, "I haven't seen I haven't seen any evidence, but I believe the president." Which is it's, it's maddening, Nick. The secretary of defense sees all of the intelligence. He knows everything and more than the president would. So it's not like the president could have some secret information. So yeah, I mean, it, it does matter whether it's imminent or not because that distinguishes how you're supposed to approach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was well, and back to what we. 
Go ahead, Phil. Shut up, Nick. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> it goes back to what we talked about, just a very quick little thing. It goes back to one of the things we talked about last week, which was that the Trump administration wasn't briefing Congress members on this as as well. And so if, you know, again, if, if Trump wants to say it's imminent, it had to be done, but we can't share that information, but we did share it with, you know, these eight members of Congress who will back us up. Yes. Then, then we have that, you know, there's, there's, there's some layers of accountability there and, and the Trump administration, which again, this is again, the culmination of a, of a shift that we've been seeing in American politics for a long time. The Trump administration wants to be able to make these decisions and not be questioned on it and to accuse anyone who does question them of being, you know, anti-American. But I, I mean, your, your earlier point was realistically, I I'm, I, from an institutional perspective, yes, uh, it's it's marginally concerning to me, and I emphasize marginally. I would say that there was no talk about this when the Obama administration invaded a sovereign country, killed someone within their own borders, and told no one about it, and then left, and then there was no repercussions of that. You're talking about the Bin Laden. Bin Laden. Right? Okay, I don't yeah. know if you're talking Libya or. I don't know. There are so <laughs> many people that they killed that we don't know about. I, I like I really. I, as much as I, I, you know, you'd like to say that this is specifically within the confines of the Trump administration and they're, you know, they're overemphasizing their, their, uh, you know, executive powers and Congress is being kind of left in the dark. I think this is a, a trend that continues to become more and more prevalent mm-hmm. within the presidency itself. I just happen to think that within this current administration, people are uh, very willing to, um, not overlook those type of things. I, I wonder. I'm, that's a, the Bin Laden was an interesting example, an interesting parallel. I can't remember. Do you guys know whether the Obama administration notified the Gang of Eight? I mean, there's that famous photo of them all sitting around the room, but I don't, there's nobody from Congress in that photo. Right. I don't recall them any. Yeah. yeah, I don't recall anything like now, that. Now, again, the one distinction there is it's, it's a, a non-state actor versus targeting a, a state actor, right? So there's that that difference, but otherwise, it's it's an interesting parallel. I, I, like I feel like that's that that's a a worse situation. You're lit, you're you have ground troops in a sovereign country where there is no declared war, yeah. as opposed to an active war zone where you have active mm-hmm. military personnel. And he technically is a military figure yeah. who isn't supposed to be there. Right. And and Bin Laden, we draw this artificial and I think problematic distinction to say that if somebody's a terrorist, we can just drone them, right? We don't have to have any kind of default. Right. But that's that's not right. So that there are, you know, there should have been more conversation about Bin Laden. Imminence, I, I do think it matters in the sense of the kind of argument you're going to make. If the if the Trump administration had come out and said, this guy had targeted U.S. troops, uh, which he had, right, and done that, and we were responding in defense to what they have done, right? There's there's a clear response there. There's a clear protocol that should come with that, including, I think, going to Congress, at least getting the Gang of Eight to say this is okay. Um, the imminent argument really only works if somebody is about to attack you. You know, somebody's about to punch you in the face, and you can preempt that attack. If that justification isn't there. There's got to be more. Otherwise, you're right, Nick. It's total anarchy. Oh, I mean, they shouldn't have. They, there should have been no mention of an imminent threat yeah. whatsoever. If they had just left it and just and gone through with it, I think we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. If, yeah, if the argument had been he's he's a he's a terrible person who has been targeting American uh, forces uh, for years, and there was this very brief window where we knew where he was and we had to act or not, then they, I, again. 
that's not necessarily a, there, there's still, you know, ethical and constitutional and separation of power things in there. But I think that would play better um, than the, you know, eminence argument that falls apart. I think you're, Nick, you were pointing out the problems with, you know, that this is something that went on in the Obama administration. I, I think this is like so many other aspects. And we've talked in previous episodes about how so much of the American system is based on, in my opinion, on faith that people will just, you know, act in, in good faith and they're going to do the right thing. And we have, you know, this belief that all these, you know, the, the norms are going to hold up. And, and as I think with Trump, what he's done in, in this instance and in lots of other instances, he's taken what presidents have done in the past, but they've been very political and smart and, you know, you know, polite about or whatever. And he's just, he doesn't give a shit about the story. He's just, he's taking the the sort of openings and running with it, whether that has to do with, you know, anyway, again, this, this expectation that presidents will behave in a certain way, Trump has just exposed how much of that is just an expectation, right? Mm-hmm. And and we felt good when it was Barack Obama, or we felt mm-hmm. better about George W. Bush, but the, the limits have not been there for a series of presidents. And that's, those are issues that have to be yeah. addressed. Right. There was a there was a great uh, edits op ed in the Washington Post today by a, a international law scholar and basically made the argument that if imminence wasn't a factor, this is both illegal in both terms of international law and domestic law. And she's like, it's not even right. close. Now, it doesn't mean you don't do these things because we violate to your both of your points. We violate international and domestic law all the time. You know, arguably some of the droning that a lot of the droning that the Obama administration carried out is, is probably outside of both domestic and international Almost law. All of it. Yes. You know, the, the invasion of Iraq clearly outside of, of international law. But again, this is Enhanced another factor where Exactly right. Yeah. We don't torture. I don't know right. Where this is outside of what we would consider legal behavior. Mm-hmm. I, I just I, and I, I, I go back to this point a lot. I, like you were talking about, Phil, we we tended to feel better about these things when there was some sort of veil of legitimacy to it. I personally like the approach of I, we realistically the everything is based on on norms and and faith in the system trump doesn't give a shit about mm-hmm. that at this point yeah. it's very one dimensional and realistically that should be the point where you start reigning in those powers and congress still isn't going to do that you want to talk about some sort of war powers resolution against iran which isn't going to ha- get any traction whatsoever outside of a democratic uh uh controlled house um it's just not going to happen like the the fact that there is no consensus on limiting a president's ability to wage war in the modern sense, mm-hmm. uh, especially over the past several administrations, is frightening. Just because you don't want to limit yourself the next time you're in power, yeah. it's it's shameful. And, and we've allowed it under Obama and George W. Bush and some previous presidents. What's more alarming, I think, about Trump is that there are so many red flags about the decision-making process. Uh, you know, that it's very clear that this did not go through the National Security Council. This wasn't vetted. You know, you didn't have multiple agencies weighing in on whether this was a good or bad decision just within the executive they branch. They gave him a menu. Right. I don't but know what you're right. talking right. about. Right. And he picked the one. And, and there are some reports that they gave him this menu. And this was the one of the more extreme ones, right. thinking that, well, he wouldn't want to go extreme. He'd pick something in the middle and then he goes and picks that one. Right. That's mm-hmm. that is is concerning. Uh, so there are the longer term uh issues of the presidential power. And then there's the unique decision-making process that is the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about the actual 
results and changes that have happened over the past week sure. in terms of um so realistically uh with the uh the shooting down of the Ukrainian jet uh the Iranians originally said that it was what was their original story that it was it was it was mechanical failure yes correct they, nothing they had nothing to do with it and then within a week it was what it it, it failed mechanically That's when true. that missile hit <laughs> <laughs> That's dark marker it that's really dark is a me- <laughs> I've heard that joke in several different iterations and it's always funny in a very bad way um <clears throat> and within a few days uh there was enough evidence for them to come out and say yeah we we shot it down it was on accident but and then video comes human out human error human error <clears throat> which you would imagine it's human error if you're shooting missiles at something that poor guy whoever the human error guy is like that's it he'll be brought up on charges he'll be executed right i mean but it's not like you just shot a missile like it was it had just left the airport yeah they shot not one but two missiles at it and it had enough time to turn around and try and get back to the airport where it crashed and then they're bringing in bulldozers to cover up the scene mm-hmm. it's just they're, they're reprehensible and you think about the degree or the way in which public opinion in iran and i think globally was somewhat sympathetic to the iranian case here the united states mm-hmm. seemed like the bullies the one who were escalating all of this mm-hmm. and then a couple days go by iran does this everything everything changes. yeah like it's public says and, and again just domestically how dumb are they to let this happen and 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 yeah. just waste right. all of that rally around the flag effect now they're calling for the president and the supreme leader this i mean again this was on a university so it doesn't mean that the regime is threatened at all but it's a big big transition yeah but uh, so yeah we have the the turnaround with the the ukrainian jet increased uh continuing and increasing uh protests in the streets despite what the media reports on uh the european uh not the european union but the european nations that were part of the uh jcpoa the iran nuclear deal yeah uh are condemning iran for not following the uh the agreement itself um Partly because the United States is threatening sanctions. Doesn't matter. It doesn't (laughs) matter anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Increase sanctions and the Iranian regime is is on its heels now. The Iranian, they have not played. They started really well. They had a good first move. And since then, it's just been a disaster. Um, although I, I don't think I don't think the United States is is the Trump administration is coming out of this clean. either. No, right? it's not. Uh, but the, the, what could have happened in the situation? Mm-hmm. This was a massive, massive gamble mm-hmm. on part of the Trump administration. Yeah. And through a marginal amount of strategy and a huge amount of luck. Yeah, they probably got the best or the close to the best possible um, result out of this situation, I would say. Although here's the thing, it depends on what your goals are, right? If, if your goal is to avoid war, yes. But if your goal is really to get Iran to change its behavior and continue to comply with, with nuclear nuclear res, re, uh, regulations, I don't know if, if we've moved better than where the Obama administration was. No, I, I think yeah. it's what we talked about uh, uh, last time, yeah. that in the end, regardless of what you think, uh, you know, in, in the current state of things, the end result that the U.S. wants to see is regime change, yeah. not a ground war with the U.S., but an internally um, uh, initiated regime change, which I, 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 not, I'm not saying that is going to happen specifically because of this, but there are cracks within yeah. that that facade of a, a very unified, uh, strong leadership in Iran, I think. 
if the that's the goal and that may be the goal of the administration, certainly was the goal of, of John Bolton and others, then yeah, mm-hmm. this may move closer to that. It may get a lot uglier before oh, anything yeah. happens. It's but be yeah. Mm-hmm. It'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens over the, the coming weeks. I, I was surprised that Iran uh, came out and and acknowledged the that they had done this. That that was that was shocking to me. I mean, what was the the flight, the other Ukrainian flight that got shot down like a decade ago by Russia? Everyone knows Russia shot it down, right? Russia still hasn't acknowledged that. Right. Um, and so for Iran to do that yeah. was was interesting. Um, and to see the but you know again the when the last protests were basically ten years ago, the massive protests in Iran that were so brutally squashed. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens in terms of, you know, again, it, it should have been a big win for the Iranian regime. And this was a massive unforced error. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it'll be yeah, well, a year from now. It'll be interesting to see where, where we are. Yeah, I, I mean, like I mentioned, there was visi- uh, video evidence of it. And mm-hmm. I think that that is a, uh, you know, anecdotal evidence of, of uh, the Iranian people. It's a very it's a cosmopolitan society that doesn't want to deal with this bullshit anymore. Yeah. You know, they they want to be part of the international international system. They want economic stability, I think, is more and more um, instances like this come up where the regime tries to hide something and they can't hide it anymore because everybody has a phone. Everybody's connected to social media that is going to be increasingly difficult for them to, to maintain power. Um, I think it's going to get very, very interesting in the next few years. I wonder what happened behind the scenes to get them to admit this, because Canada is clearly upset about this. The United States was was upset about this. And obviously, they're the ones that would have satellite footage that they could share. There had to be, you know, you're, you're going to release this or acknowledge this or we're, you know, we've got the tape that had because otherwise, why wouldn't Iran just continue to deny it? Um, I don't know. Well, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Canada is continuing to their their talking points is that this wouldn't have happened anyways if the u.s hadn't started shit yeah so well and iran too and, I, and there is a, a a bit of truth to that once you begin you know once you pull the bandaid off you don't know what's going to happen yeah. it's, it gets crazy welcome <laughs> nick <laughs> <laughs> should we talk a little bit about the domestic ramifications in the united states and so the the trump administration and some of its proxies have really been pushing what I would say is a coordinated strategy to suggest anybody critiquing them is is the enemy is, you know, in bed with Iran. That's correct. And I didn't see this coming. Uh, and, and the Trump retweet, it was, you know, Trump does stuff like that. And then they kind of walk away from it. But but for Stephanie Grisham to come back and say that, um, you know, doubling down on it and saying that, no, he, they're almost taking the sides of terrorists. That's a huge, huge deal to have somebody within the executive branch accusing the other political party of almost taking the side of terrorists. Right. That's that's not normal banter between the parties. I don't know. I I, I didn't. I, I mean, <laughs> the the retweet was a little a, a little interesting, yeah. I, I would say. Islamophobic. That's what you're looking <laughs> Yes, maybe <laughs> the worst thing um, Democrats could possibly be is Muslim. Right. According to Donald Trump. <laughs> now it's um you know we've heard that rhetoric we've heard it during the campaign people are, are communists or, or socialists or anything this just yeah. happens to be a very you have a, a confluence of events that not only are the democrats trying to break down the you know capitalist system that we have in place but they're also um they're also terrorists on top of it. Yeah. So, I mean, one just kind of, you know, it goes hand in hand. 
<laughs> it's a fine line, though, right? I is mean, this it? is no, I'm yeah. I mean, it, it's just it's and you saw. I'm trying to think of the the member of Congress who basically there was somebody in Congress who also you know made that argument, and then he came ultimately out and apologized for it. And I, but the administration won't do that, mm-hmm. and. I think as we were talking before uh, we started taping, Nick, and you were saying certain things play well with the base. This will play well with the base. Mm-hmm. But for the democracy as a whole, it's really, really dangerous to start saying that not only is the other side the enemy, and Trump has done that. He's called the you know, the press the enemy of the people. He's called the Democrats the enemy. But it's a drift, drift into this idea that they are terrorists. You know, it's just all lines are gone then. That's all right. The other side is, you know, fascist and racist and misogynist and whatever else you but you don't see it to the same you don't see that kind of I mean, I, i'm trying to th- I, you know you don't see that description often of trump right i mean he's not a fat nobody's calling him a fascist are you out of your goddamn mind <laughs> but i mean <laughs> major political figures i mean i mean people, what? people on the internet yes but who, on, who? Re- really do we want to talk about the squad at all Okay, but here's the thing. Like, think about the reaction when the squad engaged, when, when the squad did that. That was a huge deal, right? The squad was anti-Semitic. We spent, you know, a couple weeks talking about that. This Trump tweet was like, okay, and then we moved on. The media didn't focus on it, right? Because the media and the left are locusts. There's there's something new to talk about now. But there's, I mean, there's a, a difference here. I think we're we're giving we're allowing Trump to get away with behavior that the squad didn't get away with, right? Uh-huh. They were condemned for it. Um, and Trump isn't being called to account for this. Well, he's going to get us new dishwasher, so it doesn't matter. Yes. So I think the the thing for me that's interesting about this is um, um, I, I think you're right, Bill, in that the way that he he talked about this is fundamentally different. I mean, it is that presidents don't do that; they don't tweet out stuff that that he tweeted out. And and again, the the strategy there is not to um, convince anyone it's to reinforce ideas, right? So mm-hmm. it's to, to shore up his base and all sorts of other things. The other part that I find interesting about it though, is that for any other president, you know, when I think in, in political science literature, we talk about the rally of rally around the flag effect, right? The idea of diversionary theory of war is that when you have, you know, something bad happening domestically, you know, Bill Clinton was accused of this during his impeachment scandal. There, there's, you know, a fair amount of, in fact, Donald Trump said, it was reported this week that he said that uh, he basically needed the vote. He needs votes from people in the Senate who, you know, who, who want him to be strong on Iran. So whatever the reason is, though, that the end result is historically, if this happens, you would see a surge of support for the president. Uh, you, you would see people who were on the, you know, sort of on the fence about Donald Trump, who you know would come to 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 support him to see this as you know this unifying national moment. And there are so many instances of this in which political leaders, you know, do some sort of military strike and an immediate surge in, in support. George Bush, you know, September 11th was the classic example where he goes up like 50 percent in the polls or whatever. The interesting thing is that I don't I didn't see that happen at all with Trump. And I think that's where you have the difference here is that you have three years of people basically not believing anything that he says, right? When you when he exaggerates everything, when he sort of, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's become built in, right? Like when he talks, we just are sort of like, whatever, he, he, he's just making shit up, right? We've learned to live in prison. Um, and so it seems like the interesting part is that that's this is where that comes back to bite him. Right. He, he, he attacks this person. He says, I, you know, you, you trust me, I'm doing this for the national interest. Um, and, and nobody believes him. And that's where, you know, some people do. But it, it's again, the, it doesn't have that unifying effect that you would expect to see in a sort of foreign policy uh, event like this. And I think that comes back to who Donald Trump is. 
I mean, you could think about, you mentioned George W. Bush after 9-11, but you could also talk about George H.W. Bush with the first Iraq war, where during that part time of his, his uh, administration, his, his approval ratings were skyrocketing. He was through the roof. Uh, George W. Bush, the same thing, where the country came together. And in this instance, you're right. Nothing's moving. The, the, the partisan divisions are there and nobody's being swayed by his, his, his behavior or his argument, I should say. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, I, like I, I, I don't know where we go from here. I, I'm very glad that we got the result that we did. And realistically, I think it's a net positive. Um, you know, uh, the only, uh, again, major negative that I would take from this is that Congress still isn't doing enough to curtail the power of the executive branch. But um, I, I, I this this, I still think this was a big win for them, Interesting, whether intentional or not. Yeah, the, the um, even the Republican members who've made that argument that you made, uh, Nick, about that it's time to rein in the imperial presidency, Trump has attacked, right? So there's, of course. Uh, you know, that's the thing where the, the presidency is is defending its ground and, and uh, Trump is certainly that. Bill Barr is absolutely that. I mean, we're mm-hmm. seeing Bill Barr as maybe one of the, the greatest defenders of the uh, imperial power out of the presidency we've seen in a long, long time. So here's here's a question that I have, and, and you kind of brought it up. Um, there are members of, of Congress, um, especially in the Senate, who think that we need to take a, a more hardline approach to Iran. And realistically, over the past couple administrations, especially the last administration, the strategy was more towards status quo, appeasement, engagement. Um, yeah, sure. Whatever you Appeasement's want to call it. Appeasement is a loaded term, Nick. Well, so is engagement <laughs> in a very well, the, the idea with, way. With, uh, why I use that term is the idea is you want to bring Iran back into the international community. Sure. Give them incentives to behave in a better way. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, billions of dollars of money they don't need or deserve. Um, what is there? Is there now a case to be made given the results that we've seen? Or do you think people will make the case going forward that previous attempts at uh, appeasement weren't the way to go. There is some sort of merit to the argument that we need to take a hard line approach to a regime like this, strike them in a very targeted way Mm -hmm. that then puts them in a position where they're on the defensive as opposed to, you know, what we've seen previously. So let's just think about it. And from a domestic political standpoint, Mm -hmm. Trump's base, I don't know, whether they would support regime change, right? So they mm-hmm. love him, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, definitely not saying that. So, but, but right. So, so if he's thinking about that, I think he's going to be afraid of doing something like that. Yes. And I don't think the, the country as a whole, that's just the political dynamics. I still think I can't find one good instance in which toppling a regime has turned out well for the United States. Sure. It's so much more difficult. Afghanistan, Iraq, but even thinking about Venezuela, right? The idea of putting pressure on in a non-interventionist way is still proven to be incredibly difficult. Cuba, these these regimes are able to stick around for a long time. Yes. So I, I wonder whether, I don't think there's much traction for moving in that direction, but I, that's just my thought. Okay. Know. Yeah. And realistically, again, I'm not advoc- or saying yeah. that they're advocating for direct regime change. I'm yeah. saying a very targeted instance or situation mm-hmm. that strikes at an important aspect of the regime, but doesn't necessarily involve U.S. troops sure. or, or major military personnel or um, or anything like yeah. that. Enhanced sanctioned regime, you know, something like Venezuela. You could see you could see the United States moving in that direction. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, not just sanctions, but something that is very it's 
not finite, but um, very focused yeah. in a way that causes, uh, um, what's the word? Um, behavioral change. Yeah, behavioral change. But yeah, slapping them in the nose a little bit. Or, or, you know, just just something that kind of gets, yeah. for lack of a better term, gets their attention to the point where it changes their perspective. I on think the one thing so so within political science literature, one thing that they found is that sanctions have an effect on preventing bad behavior. So like, for the, you know, with Iraq, we put sanctions on them for years and it prevented them from acquiring uh, WMD. It didn't cause them to change their behavior or the regime, right? So it's the question of what is your ultimate goal? If your goal is to prevent something from happening, sanctions can be effective. If the idea is you want to change behavior and regime, much, much more difficult. Right. Yeah. And again, I'm not saying that sanctions are the way. I'm saying you need to do sanctions are, are yeah. a secondary a piece of right compared to the much more extreme uh, instance or not instance, but example of, say, a targeted assassination right, right. that leads into sanctions. Yeah. Mm hmm. I've always advocated for targeted assassinations. <laughs> I'm really glad they're starting to listen to me. We should move on and talk about beers. Okay. It's 30 <laughs> minutes on the head. Yep. <laughs> and that's a good point to end on. Mm -hmm. Phil, you have a you had a beer that looked fantastic and you were showing us in in the pregame. So what, what's going on? Yeah, so I this is another uh, beer that uh, um, the, my hookup here in Keene set me up with. This is... Um, from Foam Brewers, which are out of Burlington, Vermont. And this is a beer called Dystopian Dream Girl. Uh, and it is, uh, it's an IPA. It is super, like I, when I poured it, it's like super light and like really hazy. Like yeah. it almost looks like a wheat beer or something. Um, and just or, really, a grapefruit like, shandy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's better than that. Um, <laughs> it's a, it is really, it's really juicy, like really citrusy, um, I, it's it's a really nice beer. I really like this. It's not as good. That beer I had last week was fantastic. Um, it, it was like a you know the, one of the best mm -hmm. beers I've ever had. This gets a this is a solid A. This is a really nice beer. Good, Nicholas. What are we enjoying? We are having a Pothole City, which is from uh, Pipeworks, um, which we've had several of their yeah. things before. Uh, this is an imperial stout with vanilla beans, cacao, and natural marshmallow and almond flavor. Mm. <laughs> That sounds awful. Before we started recording, um, but yeah, <laughs> um, no, it's the, the, we're we've been having more and more more uh, stouts, um, especially during the winter because you know they're they're heavy and or depressed. Yeah, um, it seems like they keep trying to iterate on something that they don't need to iterate too much on, and. Um, you know, when you throw in uh, vanilla on top of marshmallows, marshmallows and other things yeah. that are sweet, it's just it's it's a lot of of sweetness to it. This one felt pretty heavy. Like the first, uh, um, uh, uh, response uh, that I had when when I took a sip was it felt very boozy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess it is over ten percent. Yeah, you yeah. said right, but um, yeah, like just the sweetness kind of overpowered that. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 middling for me. It seems like the trend in these imperial stouts <laughs> is to go with the sweetness, which I like a little bit of. Yeah, but you could back off it just a tad. Uh, like the one we had a couple of weeks ago was was a, a better balance. This was a little too sweet. You didn't need the marshmallows. Right. Just stick with the almonds and the other things. Yeah. Um, yes. So 
All right, it's time for speed round. Uh, today, the House of Representatives voted to transmit the articles of impeachment to the Senate, allowing the trial of President Trump in the Senate to begin. Pelosi's decision to delay sending articles of impeachment to the Senate has been hotly debated this week. We also learned that it appears likely that at least four Republicans, and maybe more, will vote to call witnesses. Last week, Susan Collins said she'd be working with a fairly small group of GOP senators to allow new testimony, adding that her colleagues, quote, should be completely open to calling witnesses. Ugh. Mitt Romney has expressed an interest in hearing from former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who has said he would testify under subpoena. Phil, the impeachment trial is going to happen, and it's increasingly likely that we're going to get witnesses. What's your sense of how this is all going to play out? I don't I don't know that we can necessarily say at this point. It's it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, the, the question of whether this worked out well for Nancy Pelosi is an interesting one. I don't think it worked out the way that Nancy Pelosi hoped it would work out. But I do think that it has worked out for her in, in kind of this you know roundabout way and that um, the delay is what allowed John Bolton to come out and say he was willing to testify. The delay gave time for several other sort of allegations and reports to come out. I mean, just today that or today, yesterday, I guess it was today. The stuff with Marie Yovanovitch that that uh, that uh, Lev oh. Arnis or whatever that he like they were basically the the text. I don't know if you can go out and you can look at those if you go on Twitter or Google, you can see these texts that uh, were being sent. Basically, they were putting out a hit on her. It sounded like it was crazy. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think in the end, I think. Uh, I, you know, in the end, this is probably a compromise solution, right? The, the Democrats aren't going to get the totally transparent uh, hearing that they want, but um, there are enough Republicans that want to hear from a few witnesses that we're probably going to get to see that. Um, I think the longer this takes, the the worse it is for Donald Trump. I don't think that that by any means, you know, at this point, there, he's not going to get convicted. But every day that goes by means that a chance for more information to come out. It'll be really interesting to see how it plays out in the Senate. And, and again, you know, uh, when it's when you have um, uh, John Roberts presiding over it, when you have actually you know, senators on the record for whether they want to hear from witnesses and setting the rules, um, it'll you know, this is a, a good test of kind of that party loyalty. How much power does McConnell have and, and, and where it goes? I, I, I don't feel confident predicting where it will where it will go as we as we move forward. What do, what do you think? Nick, what's your sense of it all? Um, I'm skeptical that we're going to actually see witnesses or additional witnesses called, um, mainly because I think the Democrats don't necessarily want to open themselves up to potentially having the Republicans call Joe or Hunter Biden in this, hmm. um, which is a possibility. Yeah. If, they, if you just want to make this a political game, the Republicans will absolutely make this a political ga uh, game, which they've said as much. Um, it, I, in terms of Pelosi's strategy with this, I feel like this is very similar to when we're saying Trump is playing 4D chess, which he never actually yeah. is. He's eating the chess pieces. Yeah. I'm still trying to, to understand what her strategy was behind this. Mm -hmm. Like, I understand yeah. holding it for a specific amount of time to just kind of bolster your your um your your uh side and and, and case and, and ability to 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 hold sway over over the um the proceedings but now it's gone on an exceedingly long amount of time in my opinion to the point where she's now risking additional damage to um 
uh, electoral prospects in 2020, I would say. Uh, it, it's the more and more that they play these games, which realistically, I, I think that there's there's merit in some of the stuff that they've done. And there is an argu- argument to be made for some of what they're saying. But the way that they're going about it and the the time frame that they're working under isn't necessarily the most beneficial mm-hmm. to them. I don't know whether she's lucky or good, right? Uh, the fact that this neither. Right no, now. I think the fact that more information came out, uh, you know, the stuff. And as long as that continues to happen, as long as there is this drip, drip, drip of additional information that is not good for Trump, the Democrats can slow play this to their advantage. Um, I think getting witnesses is going to be a big deal, even if it is Hunter Biden. Let's say they call Hunter Biden. Republicans have to be very You're careful. You're going to have to get him out of the crack house. I don't know if that's going to work. Well, but again, so this could play in a, in a variety of ways, even if he's a disaster up there. You know, the, the Republicans are the ones who did this. Is it really relevant to the, the question at hand? So I think this is not always this. This development isn't good for Trump. Uh, and that's why a majority of Republicans didn't want it. And only those in these you know, districts where they're worried about reelection are willing to uh, to entertain witnesses. So I, I do think this is a good development for the Democrats. We'll see how it all plays out. Um, you're right that it's possible they don't get witnesses. Susan Collins is famous for talking a good game, how she wants to do this. And I could completely see her saying, well, I thought the witnesses were going to be legitimate. They don't appear legitimate. Let's not do it. I mean, right. I just have no faith that she'll have any integrity at all. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is like realistically, even if it is um, uh, not benefit. Uh, um, God, what the hell was I going to say? I just lost my train of thought. Um, this is still a political process. Oh, yeah. Realistically, 100%. even if, you know, if, you know, if for whatever reason, the Republicans do get a chance to call Hunter Biden up there and it's not necessarily relevant to the articles themselves or anything else. It doesn't matter. This isn't an actual trial trial. Right. This is a political process. Yeah. And if that does come up and he is a mess up there, that's going to be infinitely more powerful than him presenting something that is. I mean, he won't present anything salient because he has nothing salient to say. We're no longer talking about removing Trump. I think the reason you impeach now is for the 2020 election. That's what all this is is for. Um, and, and again, it's hard to predict how they're going to play out. Yeah, absolutely. Really yeah. interesting. Nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's move on. So topic number two. Uh, for most of the last year, progressive candidates Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have refused to criticize each other in the 2020 race, instead directing their attacks at moderate candidates and President Trump. But that all changed this week as Sanders, as the Sanders campaign began targeting Warren. And on Monday, Warren confirmed a news report that Mr. Sanders had told her in a meeting in 2018 that a woman could not win the presidency. Mr. Sanders strongly denies that and said, uh, and he said that uh, the back and forth was not only the most serious schism between the two in the primary race, but it has also split supporters of the candidates. It has also led progressives, uh, led progressives to be worried that this will give a decided advantage to the more moderate candidates. Yes, they faced off in Tuesday's debate, and it was an awkward situation where both stick to their original stories. And after the debate, uh, they came up to each other. And there's this awkward video of them sort of interacting. Um, Phil, this is not at all that surprising, and it's almost inevitable that they would target each other at some point. So what do you make of this development, its potential impact on the primary? 
Um, so, yeah, it is inevitable, right? I mean, they're two of the top three candidates, two of the top four candidates for the Democratic nomination. At some point, they don't it's not just inevitable that they should in some way turn on each other. Uh, it, it's a, it's uh, in some ways good, right? I mean, we should be figuring out the differences and, and kind of, you know, talking about how they're how they're different. The the, the problem comes into play in that, uh, you know, we, we've we've talked on here before as well about how the old line that Republicans fall and that Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. Um, I, I, the, my concern is that you're going to get people who are really petty, right? You're going to have Sanders supporters who are pissed off at Elizabeth Warren. And if she gets the nomination, they're going to refuse to vote for her and they're going to go third party or vice versa. Warren supporters who won't get behind Bernie Sanders. Republicans don't do that, right? The Republican Party nominates Donald Trump and everybody lines up and votes for Donald Trump, um, which is what's going to need to happen. So that ability to sort of have this fight and disagree about things, but then put it behind you and get in line with you know whoever the nominee turns out to be um, is 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 an important thing. The other part of this that I think is interesting is that Bernie Sanders, um, you know, he talks a lot about how he you know he doesn't criticize other candidates. He criticizes other candidates all the time. Um, it, it's 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 some <laughs> part of it is just the narrative that that has been built up around this. I mean, they've been taking shots and jabs at each other all through this. Now they're they're the two more progressive candidates, and so and they have a history, but. They, this is not it's not that they've been holding hands and they're just, you know, perfectly happy all along. And all of a sudden this is the first schism. It's just for some reason, it feels like people are starting to pay attention now. Yeah, it's so true that Bernie is has been like subtly attacking uh, for a long period of time. Of course. Yeah. And, and realistically, especially over the past week, you've seen that, you know, as much as I want to say that this is, you know, two candidates in one political party just eating each other which I'm all for um, it, it, this is this is politics like this is what it is it, you you look at the stories and it's you know Sanders staff um, circulates talking points about you know why Warren's plans won't work and it, yeah that's what he should be doing what what is the problem necessarily and then it's you know, um, Warren staff mischaracterized the the discussion that they had you know that that uh, a woman can't win this race. Yeah, it was probably taken out of context or, or realistically, he was saying that in the climate that we have, it would be very difficult for a woman, a woman yeah. to, to win this. Not that it's you, just any woman right, right. to do this. And it's it's more for me. And which is the point I always go back to. It's the media wanting another piece of red meat. This is standard presidential politics in yeah. the U.S. I, I like there's there's nothing extraordinary about this. But as this narrative continues to happen, these schisms get wider and 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 wider. And I think that's going to really be a detriment to their uh, the Democrats uh, potential in, in the 2020 election. They're they're dividing themselves more when they should be sure. coalescing around. Well, I don't know if, if that's such a I think this is really good for Buttigieg and, and really good for Biden. Right. Uh, if the left if mom and dad are fighting on the left, it's just going to that's Graham Graham and Papa. <laughs> that's right, not mom that's and dad. Right. It's going to allow a lot of Democratic voters to say, ah, I'm tired of that. Biden's easy choice. I'm just going to go Biden. So the Biden campaign has to be elated about all of this. What's interesting, I think you're totally right, Nick. This doesn't matter. This is a little, I, I bet it is probably, San, probably, Sanders probably said it and to the in the way that you said. Like, it's it's really tough to elect a woman. I don't think, it's not that he doesn't want a woman elected. He's, right. he's very supportive of that. But he probably said in this climate, it's difficult. For me, what's really interesting is that Warren said, I think it was today or yesterday came out and she, she said she's the candidate that can unite all the Democrats. 
Okay. You're right. Whereas, <laughs> uh, you know, Bernie can't do that. This isn't, you know, it's not a jab at Biden. It's a jab at Bernie. And if she's saying that, I wonder whether that's a sign that she's going to try to move more to the center, which would be really, really good for her. If she continues to stay in the left wing and is only having a conversation with 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 Bernie, I don't think that is I don't think that's good for her long term prospects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm curious to see whether she starts drifting more to the middle, you know, keeping her progressive views, but pitching them in a more moderate voice. Is this just another conspiracy where they're trying to uh, take down Bernie? That's my thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Bernie doesn't always play nice. No, he doesn't play nice. I mean, even even with Hillary Clinton, he argued, "Oh, I you know I campaigned for Clinton," and he did. But at the at the convention, he did a lot of things that 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 weren't as helpful as he could have been. Absolutely. Yeah. She still that was a conspiracy to take him down the last time. <laughs> I'm just I, I something should have been done. Two things can be true. <laughs> you want to talk about a real conspiracy? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right, let's move on. A group of 13 former White House press secretaries and government officials penned an open letter calling for the return of frequent White House press briefings. The letter stated, quote, all of us have experienced the challenges of a regular press briefing, whether at the White House, the State Department or the Pentagon. We all had days where the last uh, place we wanted to be was behind one of those podiums. But day after day, we persisted. We believe that a regular press briefing were good for the American people, important for the administration. We served and critical for the government of our country, unquote. Uh, It has been over 300 days, 300 days since the last formal White House press briefing. And author Stephen King, our first Stephen King reference, Nick, and Don Winslow offered this week to donate $200,000 to a charity of the White House um, if they held a press conference. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham on Sunday slammed the open letter, calling it, saying this is groupthink at its finest. And she told Axios the press has unprecedented access to President Trump, yet they continue to complain because they can't grandstand on TV. They're not looking for information. They're looking for a moment, unquote. Go, girl. (laughs) Phil, some have described you as having a very Stalinist view of the press. Uh, What's your take on this squabble between the current past and current press secretary? Um, so I, I think that, uh, I, in some ways uh, there is some merit to the statement that, you know, Donald Trump does in fact, whenever he goes to get on his helicopter or whatever, stops and talks <laughs> to the press directly. So there is some level of press, uh, of access there. And, and, you know, I get that, that people might be critical of the, the, the I don't know, the, 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 the press, the, the approach that the press has in the white house, but, at the heart of it, th- this is a, a really important. Um, it's an important event. The pre- the 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 the, uh, the 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 facing the administration's willingness to face the press um, is important for both real and for very symbolic reasons. Right? It is representative of transparency. It is the idea of this is a democratic society. We are governing on the behalf of the people, and so we are going to ask. We are going to answer questions. We're willing to answer questions and stand before the people. So I understand why, you know, there are, there are people who are frustrated with the current iteration of the way the media works. But I think that the larger idea, the larger, I, I think this should be a bigger concern. This should be a bigger uh, scandal that the that the the administration hasn't faced the press in a formal way in a, almost a year. I mean, this has been from the beginning. Trump is, you know, he's a he's he doesn't like the press um, and and attacks the press and all of that. But this is this is how it plays out, right? I mean, ultimately, this means when in so many ways, when you know, we talk about Iran, when we take out you know Soleimani or whatever, 
then the idea is that there should be an ability for the press, for the people to question the president, to ask questions of the president and the president's representative. And that's just been done away with. It's just one more sort of, you know, just one more step back from transparency. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, anyway, it's concerning. Yeah. Nick. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> now I, 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 I understand that point. And realistically in, in an ideal scenario, I think that's absolutely correct. I think that there needs to be a, a measure of accountability on the part of the press too, because they don't always, especially in, in the, the modern context, probably in the past five, maybe 10 years, um, their ability to warp what is said by an administration, whether it's the Trump administration or any administration, purely for entertainment value uh, and to populate uh, uh, pundit talking points seems to be more paramount than them disseminating information. I, I, you know, it's, you can talk about um, being transparent uh, in terms of what an administration is doing. I never really saw a representative of the administration as being a transparent uh, vessel for that information. They're a mouthpiece for administration talking points. I, I, it's and realistically, it, you know, again, we wouldn't have this podcast if there was a complete dearth of information about this presidency. The information is there. It's just not in the traditional form. We have more information than we probably had of any presidency mm-hmm. ever. Um, it's I, I, I don't know the way that that the system has worked is more formal it's more normative i guess but i don't necessarily think that that's necessarily the best vessel for disseminating truthful information coming out of an administration you're right that there's more information right i think trump is constant information to me it feels more like the the administration especially in the last year and a half have drifted into a propaganda machine The, the value of a press briefing is that you've got all the reporters there. You're there for a long period of time. It, it happens every day and you have the monotony of questions. And you're right, Nick, that, you know, the media does have their own interests and they want to sell papers and all of that. But there's something about having to sit there and answer all of these questions or not answer them. Right. And and you think about the early days with Sean Spicer and then um, Huckabee Sanders. They looked bad by not answering all of those questions. That's why they're not doing them anymore, mm-hmm. uh, because it's easier for them to send Trump out and do his briefings before he gets on the helicopter. But he's got a unique style, and it's not always transparent. He answers the questions he wants. Correct. He's a bully, right? I mean, it's just it's different. You don't get enough valuable information. You know, the the current press secretary does lots of interviews on Fox News. She doesn't go elsewhere, right? So she's right. not answering hard questions. So I think there's information. But I don't know if it's valuable information. But is it answering hard questions or is it lying about hard questions or in response it, to hard questions? They should be forced to do it either way, right? Even if they're having to get up there and lie, they should have to do it. They should have to stand in front of it. They should, there should be accountability. Even if they're going to you know, make shit up, then they should have to face the awkwardness of having to stand in front of cameras and audio, you know, and, and reporters and, and do that. It's way easier to make shit up when you don't have to actually face anybody for it. And, and there's something unique about Trump who can lie with impunity. Not most but press secretaries can't do that. You're they, right. You know, even Huckabee, Huckabee Sanders, she was pretty good. She was a pretty good liar. Uh, Sean Spicer was a pretty good liar, but they would still try to cling to the truth in some ways. Trump doesn't care. Right. So when Trump's out there, right. you know, he doesn't he's not moored to the truth at all. No, he's not. But you know what? What that has 
dovetailed into is a, a, a secondary industry of quote unquote fact checkers, whether in the media or social media, which, you know, the ones who are, are, are digging deep into it are in the media anyways, uh, evis- not eviscerating, but but uh, digging into the details as much as is humanly possible. Mm-hmm. It's not that he's getting away with it. And like there's no not necessarily accountability, but there's no uh, um, uh, depth and, and understanding yeah. what he's doing. We dissect every single thing that comes out of that administration or doesn't come out of that administration <laughs> and just happens to come out somewhere else. You do, Nick, right? Because you're you're on the on the cutting edge That's of political all discourse. I do. Just all day I'm but, just hitting but there's that a, refresh button. There's a difference between the Washington Post Pinocchios, where you know some people read, but not everybody reads, and the president who's on all the major networks repeating his untruths, right? So there's I think there's a difference there. I just wish you would there was a reason for them the fact that the administration doesn't want to engage in it is revealing. And I hope whoever is the next president, Democrat or Republican, will go back to them. Here's the question that I yeah. have on this. If they're like in in a few a, a few administrations from now, a president decides not to do these things, but takes questions specifically through social media or something like that from legitimate news outlets. Would that be acceptable? It depends on the format, right? If you hear directly from the president, that could be better. But the way Trump does questions are not, it's not revealing. It's, it's talking points. It's spin, right? I mean, it, 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 there's something to that format of a press briefing that forces either you, you either have to answer or to Phil's point, you don't answer. That's revealing. Um, I mean, and I, we should point out, it's not just the, the, the White House the State Department, Mm -hmm. the Defense Department, all of them used to do a lot more briefings. And so we're not getting any of that information, not just the political stuff out of the executive branch, but also Defense Department, State Department, all of it is, you know, it it means that, again, I I feel like we've drifted into propaganda as opposed to information. Hmm. Can we talk Star Wars? Yeah, please. All right. (laughs) Speaking of propaganda. (laughs) Next topic. Well, Star Wars may be a big hit in the United States and around much of the world. It has been a big bust in China. Despite an aggressive marketing push by Disney, movie after movie has flopped in the world's second largest market. One after another, Star Wars movies have flopped in China, defying efforts to bring one of the most successful franchises in history into China's massive market. The latest Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker, has followed the trend by grossing uh, nearly a billion dollars worldwide and barely 20 million in China. There's a lot of money at stake in the Chinese film market, now the second largest in the world. The latest Avengers movie grossed more than half a billion dollars uh, there, and and series like Transformers, The Fast and the Furious consistently make hundreds of millions of dollars. The size of the Chinese market and their tight government control of the type of movies that can be shown in China is transforming the movie industry. Our listeners should know that both Nick and Phil are huge Star Wars fans and are both you know dressed in character tonight. Uh, let's start with why you think Star Wars has struggled in China. Not tonight. And then, that's right. And then reflect on the broader impact China is having on the film industry. Phil, why don't you start us off? Uh, so I, my disclaimer is that I've put literally zero thought into this prior to this moment. But um, <laughs> the first two things that pop into my head are that the, the, the current Star Wars movies are built on on nostalgia. Right. I mean, it, it is about, you know, going and you get to see the, you know, the characters from our childhood. And, and there's, you know, all of this kind of uh, it's not necessarily feel good. But, yeah, I yeah. mean, that, that's what it's built on. And, and China, again, in the 1970s, when those movies, 70s and 80s, when those movies first came out, not necessarily a big movie market. And so um, I wonder how much of that plays into it. 
uh, I don't know. There's also, I, again, just talking off the top of my head, the idea of, you know, people describe Star Wars as a space Western, essentially. Um, and and the, the, the theme of the Western is, you know, very much about individualism and, and all of this other stuff that, that may not necessarily have the same resonance with with Chinese uh, culture. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I still tend to think that a lot of the selling point of the modern Star Wars is people who want to see it because they watched it as a kid. And, and that doesn't play out in, in China in the same way. I, I, one more thing, and then I'll shut up, which is the impact that China has on, you know, this is the thing that's come up with with, uh, you know, the NBA that we've talked about, but but the, the ability of China to essentially force edits into films because of their their financial uh, the the size of the market is both not surprising it is the capitalist way in lots you know in every way but it is also i think in some ways deeply concerning and it gets around to again the idea of power not just like hard power not just military power but the the rise of chinese soft power and how that will i think shape a lot of things in the next 20 years mm-hmm. nick star wars Ooh, now it's nick's time to yeah show um, we should have just given you all five minutes. You really this. should have, because it's going to take five minutes anyway. So you should probably, I'm just going to stop the clock. Um, no, I, I think those are, those are good points. Realistically, it, it, it is, it's a, 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 a space Western for lack of a better term. And it's very, Star Wars is a quintessential Americana piece of filmmaking, um, which doesn't necessarily translate well to other cultures that didn't have that, especially, um, Asian cultures that really had had you know no um, upbringing with that. Um, the other part of that, in the modern context, I would say is that Star Wars specifically, their core values are specifically built around a hegemonic power versus a rebellion and a resistance that China certainly doesn't want to give voice to. Um, as as kind of childish as that sounds, I think any sort of um, instance where there's a threat to a, a massive governmental entity, um, you know, they, 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 they don't want to give voice to that kind of, uh, of, of, uh, perspective and, and thought process. Um, it's just, I, I, and I think that there's, there's some culpability in, um, from Hollywood in the sense that they want, investment from China and they don't necessarily care about the stories that they're telling as much as they want the money coming back into Hollywood to fund the, their, um, their, their films. And you see a lot of that in terms of what we see now, when you talk about superhero movies and Marvel and sequels and all of those things that people tend to think don't have a, a tremendous amount of substance to them. They're, you know, they're popcorn movies and um, there's something that, you know, you can just kind of sit there and turn your brain off those are all funded by China that like this, those are the things that they push as much as is humanly possible because it doesn't rock the boat at yeah, all. Right. Um, and that's why we see more and more and more of this. And uh, you know, older film companies that are historically, you know, foundationally American and have given us some of the, the best cinema that we've had throughout cinema's history are now beholden to Chinese investors and, and companies that dictate what Spot can on. and can't be yeah. said. Um, and then I guess my final point would be, um, the new movies are just fucking terrible. That may be the best. That may be the best of all. Here of are my points. So point one, I don't know how you have, so you have the Republic and then they're the main governing body. And then, but then suddenly they're, they're they need a resistance to combat something that's not as powerful in them. Point two, 
Um, they destroy the Republic, which is one star system, which doesn't make any sense. And then the First <laughs> Order is suddenly in charge of everything. And then point four, you have an entire scene where you're talking about, well, it's a Death Star, but it's bigger. You literally have that in a movie. And I don't know how you get away with that and think that it's going to be good. And we won't even go into the new ones because that or the newest one, because that was really, really bad. I think that's a, that's a good place to end, because I think you're right that if you come into Star Wars at this point, you're probably wondering, like, what is going on here? If you started with the early ones, Han Solo, man, that guy was fantastic. <sighs> they, they're good. It's good character development yes, early on. Yes, yeah. it's fun. The on top of it, yep. the originals are, and, and you know, I'll even give the, the prequels some good. They had great world building. No, the it, directing it, 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 was. They, hey, they had a concise, <laughs> very understandable story. Jar Jar Binks. We're not talking about Jar Jar Binks, okay? <laughs> We're not talking about the individual characters. They had a beginning and end point. You You're knew right. what was going to happen. It was linear. And they did fantastic world building. Yeah. Them. This one retreaded everything that they did in the original uh, series, and you, it was terrible. You guys have said it all very well. The only thing I would add is I'm a bit surprised. So you've got Hollywood, and you've got Bollywood, right? So the United States and India have these major markets for movies, China has not really developed something comparable. And there are, there are obviously there are Chinese films, but a, a, a country of that size with cultural impact, don't you have to think there's going to be something that will at some point surpass Hollywood in terms of global influence? I don't, I, I don't think so because they can, they, they own most of Hollywood right now. Like, I, I don't think yeah. they need to, to do it themselves. They can outsource it and yeah. get, American movies with the production value and the you know the directors and the 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 um, the production that you would get over there and just import it back maybe edit a few scenes sure. but in the in you know from the start it's with your money it's you know the the majority of it is is your property and you don't you, you know you don't have to do anything like that sure. you don't have to risk um, trying to recreate a narrative when someone else is doing it and if something goes wrong you can blame them for it. Mm -hmm. You could have more, a greater cultural influence, right? You know, the you could. I, I, it'd be interesting to see. It is. It's an interesting. I hadn't thought about that, Bill, but I, it is an interesting. Why China hasn't done that? I think. I think to the the Beijing Olympics with their like their huge opening, whatever they they spent huge amounts of money and had it choreographed and and it like generated all sorts of interest in China and Chinese culture and Chinese history and it seems like for a soft power sort of approach, it, it would be smart for China to invest in you know screw the the bottom line right. It's not about making money. It's about you know spreading the sort of image of China as a as a leader and 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 the the influence of Chinese culture. Yeah, it's it's a little surprising that you haven't seen more. Yeah. That. I mean, you don't need to do that when you can just throw somebody in a prison camp, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what they think. It's also entertaining. It is also entertaining watching them scream and flail on the way there. All right. Our new final topic. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. We got to get to the ludicrous. Yes. So, all right. So we're going to finish by looking at two political, actually three political stories and deciding which is deserving of the award for the most ludicrous story of the week. Story number one. On Sunday, the White House officials, the White House's official Twitter handle tweeted out a nighttime photograph of the world's most famous residence, the White House, behind falling snowflakes with the caption, quote, first snow of the year. Oh, it's idyllic. <laughs> Only problem, it didn't snow in the city that day, and it was in fact unseasonably warm with highs that reached nearly 70 degrees. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. You know those 70 degree days when it's just that right. light snow? <laughs> yes. Story number two, vomiting vultures. Vultures are defecating and urinating all over the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, Border Protection radio towers that is vital to the agency's communication needs. 
Roughly 300 vultures have coated the entire 320-foot tower in Texas, including the interior part that workers need to touch. <laughs> they will often defecate and vomit from their roost onto buildings below that house employees and equipment. Beyond the risk of vomit and prey falling from the sky, vultures have sharp nails and beaks that can cause deep scratches. <laughs> deep scratches. Yes. The birds also regurgitate a reeking and corrosive vomit that kills bacteria on their legs eggs, but also slowly destroys metal, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Hmm. So we learned that this week. And finally, last night, Trump held a rally in my hometown of Milwaukee. And at one point, he turned his ire on dishwashers. Nick, we got to go to the tape for this one and hear Trump's description of dishwashers. Please hold. Yeah. Stalling. Here we go. But I'm also approving new dishwashers that give you more water so you can actually wash and rinse your dishes without having to do it 10 times. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's gonna be like that. Anybody have a new dishwasher? I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for that. It's worthless. They give you so little water. You ever see it? Air comes out. They, so little water. So what happens? You end up using it 10 times and the plates, then you take them out and do them the old fashioned way, right? But what do you do? You're spending 10 times for the electricity, right? So I'm putting the water back. Most places have so much water, they don't know what the hell to do with it. And a lot of people don't realize that. So dishwashers now, you're going to have a, just as much as you've ever had. And you're going to use now one shot. Your dishes are going to be beautiful. I'm sorry that you just bought one of those brand new pieces of garbage. But, darling, you can throw it. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I know the answer to this, Phil. Yeah. What's the most ludicrous story of the week? <laughs> so, um, the, oh, yeah. as someone who grew up in Texas, you, you just the, the fact that there are things in nature that will kill you and destroy metal and all this other stuff, it's just what you grow up with. <laughs> so that's not ludicrous. That's like day-to-day life in Texas. Um, <laughs> living in, having lived in Louisiana, it's even worse there. So I, I don't the, the so the first story about tweeting out a picture of snow when it's 70 degrees and the third story both are kind of the same story to me <laughs> which is the extent to which we are just totally separated from fact or truth anymore it is just whatever the hell we want to talk about and so that that's I mean that's the, yeah it's got to be one of those two I my, my tendency is to say when it's 70 degrees outside and you're tweeting pictures of snow, that's maybe the most ludicrous because there are at least people who are upset about new environmental regulations. Right. But they're both problematic. <laughs> most ludicrous to you. All right. So uh, vultures, I'm going to say no, just because I'm assuming this was um, some sort of uh, environmental protection thing where we had to save the vultures. So I'm going to blame the uh, the left for this one. Um <laughs> So realistically, it's their fault. I don't think it's ludicrous. I think they're ludicrous. The vultures' but. fault or the or the United States government? It's the EPA's fault. <laughs> it's the EPA's fault. Yes. Um, first snow of the year. I mean, that's just a good troll, man. Like you got to say, they're good at trolling. It people. is really because good I trolling, guarantee yeah. the conversation was, "Watch what I do right now. <laughs> this is going to set their friggin' brains on fire." Um, in terms of Trump's thing, I will say that is ludicrous. But yeah. As I was saying before we started, 
this will play well in middle America. And if you watch the tape, you see people behind him shaking their head, nodding their heads and going dishwashers. <laughs> my dishes are still wet. I agree with that. And you know what? When I left the house today, my dishes were still fucking wet and I was upset about it. <laughs> Which I don't know how adding more water necessarily makes it you need, better. You need more air. I need, need more air. You need one of those ones that sprays air. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Yeah, the way that he sounded sounds absolutely crazy. But I think it's a it's it's a good uh, it's a good political yeah. thing on his part. See, I was the first two stories. The first snow of the year that just messed with my mind. Right? What is he doing? Told you. <laughs> I I don't know if it was intentional. My guess is it was a mistake. And then they're like, no, leave it. Right? Which is. <laughs> Weird and messed up. They're the best trolls. The vultures terrify me. <laughs> this, this is. I'm afraid that as global warming occurs, we're gonna have vultures moving north, just like the killer bees. Um, when, when have you seen a killer bee? They're everywhere, Nick. They're, are they everywhere? You, you, you watch these documentaries. <laughs> it's really scarifying. Scaring me. Scarifying. So scarifying me. Scarifying. <laughs> so, so both of those are, I think, ludicrous. And then the dishwasher thing happened. And it's it's clearly the winner. It is the most ludicrous uh, thing. That was I've a heard, late entry, by the way. Yes, in a long time since his toilet thing, when he was mad about the toilets. Last we have to flush them, yeah, nine or ten times. <laughs> this is insane. We have a relatively new dishwasher. It's fantastic. What are you talking about? Oh, I mean, you got to scrub the dishes before you put them in there, but that's every dishwasher. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <But I, laughs> I mean, that's what this is, right? Like he he finds some this is he finds something that plays with an audience, you know, right. complaining about him because he's done this about, you know, light bulbs. He's done it about all sorts of other stuff. And the more fired up they get, the more that he goes down this road, which is how we end up with these <laughs> insane stories that are unrelated to the truth. But his his uh, his crowds are eating it up. And you think about there are real problems in this world, Nick dishwashers are not one of them, right? And so we're going to focus hey. on dishwashers as opposed to all the other issues in the world. Hey, everything is relative, okay? <laughs> if you're in the Midwest and it's the middle of winter and what you're doing is doing dishes because you can't go outside or do anything else and there's a spot of water on there, I'm going to be real pissed about it. Probably for no reason. This, but... one, this makes me think of the Seinfeld episode with the, the shower and the... You know, where Kramer's just getting blasted with the hose. Oh, with the, 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 the <laughs> they used to clean elephants at the yeah, zoo. That's right, the elephants. <laughs> this feels like where we're going to go. We're going to blow up all our dishes and think, God damn it, that's what we needed. Right? <laughs> I, I still contend that he is one of the greatest comedians of the past 20 years. He's awesome at doing crowd work. Yeah. He knows what plays well. And he, 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 he does. He does crowd work. It's an act. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You, right, yeah, I'm sorry you bought that piece of shit. He's, he's, he's fantastic at communicating with a specific type of person. Yeah. Someone who realistically, as much as he is not a very down-to-earth kind of, you know, working class person yeah. who, 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 who responds to that stuff. And that's important in this, in this campaign. I, I, you know, you want to talk about Bernie and uh, and uh, Elizabeth Warren and how they're they're operating and you know uh, Bernie's accusing her of only um, uh, focusing or or, or um, what's the word uh, not responding um, I don't know focusing on mm-hmm. uh, 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 highly educated elements of the Democratic Party um, 
he's he's he has a wider base that yeah. he can continue to expand with stuff like this. It sounds crazy, but it does play with people. Yeah, it's an identity thing, and it works. And he's it's an act, but he play he does it well. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Oh, he's my hero. Not really. <laughs> don't don't put that on tape. <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. We got to talk about Star Wars oh. and vultures vomiting on things this is what we should do every we week. do it all we really we really we do all the topics. it all <laughs> i'll be putting all of my other points about why the newest star wars trilogy was terrible on social media <laughs> so uh if you want to find those three to four hundred different points uh follow us on twitter at barstool paul p-o-l facebook at barstool politics beers that we try you can find on untapped on ios or android um just look for barstool politics on there uh, the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music. Um, review us, share us, like us through there. Uh, and then our merch line on Teespring. Uh, look for the, the uh, direct link on the, the social channels. Um, hats, T-shirts, mugs, more things to come. Um, lots of fun things. Um, anything else, guys? We're good. Phil? I'm good. Cool. We will see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.